I'm super excited because I get to share this morning on a hero of mine. We're doing a series called People of Purpose and this morning I get to share on a hero of mine. I've got to tell you, it sounded really good in the shower this morning and so I'm super excited because if it comes out anything like it sounded like in the shower, I'm like, yes, this is good. But I've also got to warn you that the shirt's a little deceptive. It's my Fiji shirt. And uh, it's bright and colourful, but I was, as I was telling the Cal this morning, you do know all the most dangerous creepy crawlies are bright and colourful. <laughs> Can anyone who doesn't already know, because there's a few people who know I'm speaking on, because if you know me well, you would probably guess this hero of mine that I want to speak about. It's a biblical character, so no, it's not Spider-Man. <laughs> it's not Spider-Man, sorry. But no, I reckon if you know me well enough, I often refer to this person. He's not, not a big character in the Bible, but I am constantly blown away by him. Does anyone want to guess? Not Jonah, not Micah. I'll give you a clue, it is new. New Testament, sorry. Not Zacchaeus. Joyce Meyer. <laughs> no, not, not Philemon, Philemon. No one knows me. Stephen. Stephen, Stephen, Phil, Brad, no, Stephen. I get to share about Stephen today. Now, one of the really awesome things I think about Stephen is that he's like me. And the reason I think he's like me is because he never met Jesus in person. Do you know how, and this is in my weakness, right? This This is not theologically grounded, but in my weakness, I go... Trying to follow Jesus is a little bit hard because I'm not God. So Jesus was God and I'm not. So it's a bit tough to measure up to Jesus as my benchmark. And then you go, well, the next benchmark is the apostles, those that hung out with him. And you go, yeah, but they spent three years with him in person. Surely they've got a head start to me, right? Surely they've got an advantage I don't have to live a Christ-like life. And as I said, this is not theological, but this is map thinking. And the third part, we come to this guy called Stephen who never, as as much as we're aware, met Jesus. And so he's like me in that he's in the same position I am. He's got the same information I have to follow Jesus. And yet he's also a really, really challenging space. Let's uh, let's find out about Jesus. Let's find out, yes, that's about Jesus, but through Stephen. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Hellenists are Greeks, Hebrews, Jews. There's a bunch of Christians together. The the Greeks are complaining about the Hebrews. Why are they complaining? Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So they're feeding the widows, but the Greek widows are missing out. They go, hang on, you Jews, you Hebrews. You're not looking after our Greek widows. And the twelve, being the disciples, the apostles, summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. 
and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. So this is the first time we hear about this guy, Stephen. He's just a guy in the church who's hanging out, doing his thing, um, and this problem arose, and so they decided that they needed to solve the problem, and they went, well, it's a bit hard for us to be out preaching the word at the same time as trying to serve the widows, so how about we get some people to do that? But the fascinating thing is the requirements to be an administrator in this New Testament church. The requirements to be an administrator in the New Testament church was full of the Holy Spirit, of good repute, yep, and wisdom. Yeah? Full of the Holy Spirit, of good repute, and wisdom. Now, this is, I'm not having a go at you, Julie. I'm talking about administration serving in general. But it's a fascinating measure of what it is for this duty. We often divide and separate roles, some being spiritual roles, some being not spiritual roles. And they were like, no, no, no. If you're going to operate and function in the body, we're going to make sure that you're led by the Spirit, that you're of good repute and wise. And the other interesting thing is, that, that stands out in this part, is that um, the ones that they appointed to be administrators, they laid hands on and prayed for. Oh, hang on. Don't we only do that for those that are doing spiritual tasks? We lay our hands on pastors to set them apart, or, or maybe if you're a, a youth leader, we'll lay hands on you. But these guys were distributing food among the church. There's no division in the roles. Do you notice that? It's a really cool, cool starting point. And the result of setting these people apart was that the church grew. The word spread. These people enabled the church to grow, the gospel to be spread. It's a really cool starting point. And Peter was one of these guys. Continues. Peter, Stephen. Stephen was one of these guys. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Hang on a minute. What was his role? He was an administrator. Did I read that correctly? Full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Hmm, interesting. What sort of administrator is this? (laughs) Well, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenes and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So there's a few of them. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy, this holy place and the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. He radiated with the spirit in him. Amazing. This normal bloke just hanging out in church, set apart as an administrator, is radiating like an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. I'm not going to read this whole block. He goes on to give them a history lesson. A history lesson through the lens of the gospel. A history lesson that talks about them as Jewish leaders and their forefathers and how they engaged with God through history. I'm going to jump down to... Verse 51 of chapter 7. So this is Stephen, the church attender, set apart because there was a bit of an issue with the handing out of food. Now in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of the, the powers of the day. And after telling this story, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ear, You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when, they, when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of this execution. And there rose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made grave lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It's not a pretty picture. It's not a pretty picture. It doesn't appear to be a pretty picture. This guy, Stephen, an average bloke in the church, could have been Dan, could have been Steve, could have been Paul, put his hand up for a task And he's just ended up stoned. Not only has he ended up stoned, but because of how enraged they were, the persecution against the church increased. The church was scattered as a result. Why on earth would Stephen be a hero? How is it possible for Stephen to be a hero? Sounds like he really put his foot in it. The one thing that is amazingly consistent in this story 
every step of the way, in his diligence in his task, in his diligence in sharing the gospel, in his diligence before the Sanhedrin, and even his diligence in death, was he was led by the Holy Spirit. Every step of the way, he was led by the Holy Spirit. We were at the uh, Global Leadership Summit earlier this week, and one of the speakers was talking about how to communicate and connect and lead teams that are multiple generations. Very funny talk because there's very funny things that generations do. There's patterns of behaviour that that baby boomers get up to and Gen Xers get up to and he was quite an entertaining speaker. But one of the things he shared was that Gen Y, called millennials, that's anyone in their 20s and 30s basically, are motivated, and this is a generalisation obviously, so if you're in that bracket and this is not you, that's okay. But generally, Gen Y people, millennials, are motivated by outcomes. They're motivated by results. And so they don't want to step in or do something unless they know what the outcome's going to be. And I thought to myself, I know a bunch of millennials like that. You'll ask them, do they want to want to come to something they go oh possibly uh who's going to be there what food is on offer um who's leading it what's what's going to happen and I've got a couple other people that have got other things happening I might just wait and see what they're up to and I'll pick and choose based on what the results might be and so this resonated with me this idea of millennials deciding based on outcomes No, is anyone relating to this? No? Yeah? <laughs> no? <laughs> no idea what I'm talking about? <laughs> so, um, so I was like, yeah, I, I understand this concept. And it struck me as I, I was looking at Stephen, there is no way a millennial could be Stephen. It is not possible. Because Stephen was led by the Spirit in obedience. He did not care about the outcome. And I thought to myself, and by the way, I'm not having to go millennials because I want to tell you, millennials aren't the only ones that think about the outcomes before they step into things. I think all of us can relate to the fact that we wait and find out what the outcome is before we step into something. And what's amazing about Stephen is this is a guy like us. He didn't walk around with Jesus for three years. He wasn't the son of God. And do you see the pattern of his experience with the pattern of Jesus? A guy full of the Holy Spirit that ended up in a situation that got himself killed. And what were his last words? Something along the lines of forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they're doing. Can you see the mirror image of Stephen's life? And Stephen is someone I can follow. He's like me. Sometimes Jesus seems like too high a bar, but this Stephen guy is like us, and yet he's so not like us because we want to wait for the outcome before we're prepared to invest. We want to wait to see what the result's going to be before we actually commit. And in Stephen's case, obedience to the Holy Spirit meant the outcome sucked. Do you know if he realized, which I doubt he did, that the church was going to get persecuted because he stood up and declared what was true in front of a bunch of people that needed to hear it. Like imagine, in your mind, you go, okay, I'm prepared to lay my, da- my, my life down for Christ. I'm prepared to, to say the truth in front of the Sanhedrin. 
in, in obedience to God, in response to the Holy Spirit, hear me, this is being obedient. Imagine he went, okay, I'm prepared to lose my life for this cause, which he did. He, he knew where this was heading. He knew they were angry and he kept going. He didn't ease up. But imagine if he also knew that the church was going to be persecuted and scattered as a result, which he didn't. But this is a guy that was committed to the Holy Spirit. And I, that line about radiating like an angel, for me, shows how, how connected, how surrendered he was to the Spirit. That his face shone with radiance. It oozed out of him in this place of persecution. It's such a profound picture that causes me to question how we're motivated as Jesus followers. It causes me to question in my own walk what it means to follow Jesus. Is the Holy Spirit just a nice advisor that I get to pick and choose from? Or is the Holy Spirit the one that maps out my path, that guides my way, that empowers me? I love that it also says he was a man of grace and power. Like what amazing picture of this guy. This guy just in the church like us when he's empowered by the Holy Spirit, is able to walk out this journey of obedience. What I wonder about is us as Jesus followers and our spiritual resilience, our spiritual perseverance. I wonder if we're more like millennials than we like to think, or we are millennials and we're like that, and that we're not like Stephen, that we pick and choose things based on convenience, based on, based on what suits us, not based on what God's doing. The other thing Stephen could have no idea about is this young guy, Saul, that's watching, holding people's garments and approving what was going on, that then stepped into smashing the church, actually end up being the biggest, greatest advocate, arguably, after Jesus. Two-thirds of the New Testament is written from this guy who sat there, stood there, watching Stephen get stoned for being a man of the Spirit. Nobody, nobody present that day could have imagined what God had planned for the church through this guy, Saul. Nobody. In fact, when Saul was converted and became a Christian, they still didn't trust him. They still didn't believe that it was possible that a person that persecuted the church that was endorsing the the murder of Stephen was able to do this. And yet I would argue that Stephen was was a hero for Saul who became Paul. If Stephen had known that he was going to be an influence, a witness, a testimony to a young guy who was going to transform and multiply the church like no one before him had done, would that have changed what he did? We don't know. But we do know he was motivated out of obedience to the Spirit, not out of the results. We can look back and go, ah, can see what God was doing. Stephen lost his life. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people heard the gospel and were saved. Wow, it's like the picture of Jesus who lost his life for the salvation of mankind. Now, 
some people would go, hang on, you're, um, you're treading a fine line here. You're not being a particularly responsible leader because telling people to do stupid, radical things gets them into trouble. People end up burnt out. Families end up hurt and damaged. There's consequences to doing stupid, radical things and persevering and, and pursuing things to death. You're right. There is consequences. I do want to put a little caveat in here. I'm not telling us to work harder. The message is not work harder. Hear me very clearly. It has nowhere does it say that Stephen busted his guts 20 hours a day for the Lord. Yeah? Everywhere he went, he was led by the Spirit. Doesn't mean he was stupid and burnt himself out. I believe people burn people out. God doesn't. Yeah? I've said it before and I'll keep saying it. If you're led by the Spirit, I do not believe you will be burnt out. And by burnt out, I mean disillusioned and incapable, incapable of continuing in ministry. Yeah, So, so being, being crushed to the point of being unfruitful. I believe God, when we're in that place, is able to provide and equip and enable and inspire. So people burn people out. And if you're worried about your family getting hurt, I think Jesus had something to say about that. He said your family's going to get hurt. Being a Jesus follower costs and sometimes it costs things that are dear to us but we cannot comprehend we cannot understand the big plan if we believe that he is lord then where as his spirit leads we go in obedience we persevere i want to give a couple of really simple examples of this that that i think we personally struggle with in this church i hear a lot of people say that god values people God values people and loves people, and we want to reflect that. I hear a lot of people say that that God particularly loves those that are struggling, those that are downcast, those that are oppressed, those that are powerless. And yet it grieves me on a Sunday morning to watch people come in that have never been here before and sit on their own. There's a big gap there. There's three or four people in here that get it and step in and go and say hello to people. And yet, and yet there's, it's not something that's natural to us. We talk about it and we say, yes, God's heart is for those that are, that are far from him. God's heart is for those that are powerless or weak. And you go, someone walks in that has, knows nobody here that's a foreigner in a lot of ways. And yet we sit and let them sit there on their own. I go, that's really sad. And someone will say, oh, but you know what? I, I came that Sunday and I was in a bit of a bad place. I'd had a rough week and I just felt like I needed to be with the Lord and to spend some time with the Lord. Awesome. Do you know what Jesus did about that? He got up early in the morning and he went out and prayed. So if you're coming here at 10 o'clock saying I needed time with the Lord, what were you doing at 6 o'clock? Excellent. But that's my point. My point is, if you need time with the Lord, get time with the Lord. If the Spirit is leading you to spend time with the Lord, when you're gathered with others, it's not your personal time with the Lord. We're gathered together here to be able to encourage and equip and let the Spirit move amongst us, and we're here to serve one another. And if you want personal time with God, awesome, get up at 6 o'clock. You go, but I had a late night. I was like, yeah, and why did you have a late night if you need personal time with the Lord? 
What's the, we say we're following the Spirit, and yet we contradict ourselves. We say these things are important. Another thing people will say to me is, uh, you know, prayer is really important. I think prayer is the foundation. And they'll come along to Tuesday night prayer and they go, ah, oh, just wasn't the vibe I was after. I was kind of thinking more about, you know, vibe where we'd be, you know, speaking in tongues. And I, I'm just making that up, but I didn't want anyone to feel condemned by what I'm saying because I'm not here to condemn anyone. And they go, you know, so I came for a couple of weeks, but I go, if you think prayer is important, where is your perseverance in prayer? Where is your championing of prayer in the life of the church? Because if you say it's important and you believe the Holy Spirit is leading us to be a people of prayer, ring people up and say, I'm going to be at prayer. Can I pick you up and take you to prayer? If it's where the Holy Spirit is going, then it's where we should be. And yet so often we're driven by convenience and outcomes. If I go to prayer and it's boring, or if I go to prayer and I don't really feel or sense the Holy Spirit moving, was it a waste of time? I don't know. But the Holy Spirit's told me that prayer is important, so I'm going to be where the prayer's happening. I believe people are significant and those that are vulnerable are significant. So if someone walks into this room vulnerable, I'm going to make sure that they feel safe. I'm going to make sure that they feel valued. Because I believe that's where the Holy Spirit's leading. If you feel, and I've heard many people say this, that, 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 that our culture has robbed Halloween. Our culture has taken Halloween. Look at all the shops. It's distracted us. It's a really bad thing for us. Then I expect you to go to Darren and Cal and say, how can I help? What can I do? I think you've got a solution. I think God is, is doing something in this space as the Spirit leads. If you're convicted that this is a space that God wants us to do something new in, don't just sit back and say how bad it is that our shops are full of Halloween merchandise. Be obedient as the Spirit leads. There was a day that I, um, I jumped on the train from work. I jumped on at Richmond and was heading home. And the train was pretty full. There would have been, I don't know, like all the seats were gone and there were five or ten people standing in each doorway. I looked and I was like, wow. There's a whole row of chairs that are empty. And so I thought, if no one else is going to sit there, I'll, I'll go and sit there. I'm, I've got a long, long train trip, so I'm more than happy to move my way through. And as I moved my way through, I looked down and I could see between the chairs, there were two feet. One had a shoe on and one didn't. I was like, there's a person down there. And I walked, walked down and down the aisle, and, I, and as I got closer, I could see there's a guy with his head on one end against the wall, blood dripping down from his forehead and his feet sort of sprayed across the other end with one shoe on and one, one shoe on the ground. And I turned to the person there and I said, is he all right? And they, um, you know, in their tablet and was like, oh, 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 look, oh, yes, there's a man there. I don't know. <laughs> Pretending like they hadn't noticed. And I went over to him and I said, are you all right, mate? And there was this, uh, I was like, he's not well. So I walked up to the, the button and I pressed the emergency button. We've now travelled partway between, between Richmond and South Yarra. And all of a sudden in the cabin there's uh, groans of people. And we get to South Yarra and no one had answered my pressing of the button. And I was in the front carriage. So I ran down the, ran down the platform to the front gate, to, to the front door to the, um, uh, to the train driver. And I said, sorry, mate, but there's a guy in our carriage that's not well. He's not in a good way. 
And he said, I know, like, I, I heard you press the button. I've called the station attendants. Um, he said, someone in the carriage has actually spoken to me now since I, I left the, the cabin. Someone actually said, there's a guy here that's not well. So I said, awesome, thanks. Um, the station attendants came down at South Yarra. They walked onto the train, looked at the guy and said, really sorry, we're not medically trained. We can't move this person. And they're not conscious enough to move themselves. We have to wait for an ambulance. How long is the train going to be here for? Someone says. And they said, as long until the ambulance comes. We're not moving until. So this guy gets up. He says, oh, I'm a doctor. Gets this guy's shoe, stuffs it in his backpack, grabs the guy by the shoulders, stumbles him out the door, puts him on the seat at the, on the platform, puts the backpack next to him, gets on the train and says, let's go. He was with an attendant, but now he's off the train. The train guards, the attendant said, look, you can't move him either. And he was like, oh, I'm, I'm okay with that. And so off the train went. We're shocked at that. And yet I think sometimes our faith is like that. We see what is right. We know the Spirit says what is right, but we have somewhere to be. We have something to do. We have things that we want to get to. We have a life that's busy. We have people with expectations on us. There were people there that probably had kids at home screaming at them saying, where's dinner? And it consumed them to not see what was happening in front of them. And sadly, I think we're less like Stephen and more like those people on the train. For me, the reason Stephen is such an amazing inspiration is because it was at all costs that he persevered. It was because he was led by the Spirit that he persevered. And when we say we're led by the Spirit and when we say that we're people that know what salvation looks like, knows what the gospel looks like, I want to be people that ooze, that radiate, that shine in a way that is offensive to some people who don't like the light. That is such a blessing to someone else who's a widow, a Hellenistic widow that isn't being served properly. Stephen, for me, is a guy that represents the possibility of normal people like us being Jesus' followers by the Spirit. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses like Stephen, it doesn't say that, I added that, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance, perseverance, stamina, the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He modeled this for us. He showed us what this looks like. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I am convinced that God is good. I am convinced that when the Holy Spirit convicts convicts me to do something, it is both for my good and for the good of his plan and purpose. I don't always see the results. I don't always see what's coming. But I don't want to be motivated by what I think should happen and what should be coming. I want to be motivated by what he wants and what his plans and purposes are. 
And I have to trust. I have to do that in faith because I don't get to see the outcome sometimes. I have no idea what happened to that guy on the train. No idea at all. But I so hope and trust in the fact that Jesus does know. I don't know whether he experienced something of God in his life post that point. I don't even know what caused him to be like that. The obvious answer was he was drunk, but I don't know. Did he have an epileptic fix? I I don't know. But I do know the spirit which leads and guides me. And I do believe that God is calling us as a people to be obedient to the spirit, sometimes in spite of the consequences, sometimes rejoicing in the consequences, but either way. We get to endure, to persevere, to press on, to push on. And I know from everybody that I speak to that you have circumstances that are not easy. Stephen's circumstances were not easy. But I also know that in trusting Jesus, in trusting the Spirit, we do not have to solve the puzzle. We just have to be obedient. We do not have to know what the conclusion is to be obedient. And I believe God wants to do something cool today. We did this earlier, but I want to repeat it. We talk about laying down things at the cross. And it's symbology and it's, it's sort of a bit fluffy out there. But what I want you to do is ask the Spirit to share with you, to speak to you about something that you... How do I put this? That the Holy Spirit wants you to be passionate about. Maybe it's something that you've always been passionate about. Maybe it's something that you didn't know before today he wanted you to be passionate about. Maybe you're going to be just reminded of something that you already do diligently and he wants to say, I'm just, just, you're just such a good and faithful servant. Keep going. But for most of us, there's things that we know we should be championing that we're not. We know there's promptings of the spirit that we've ignored, that we've shelved, that we've said maybe one day when I've got it together or I can see the results. Lord, we thank you so much that you're good. We thank you so much that you want to meet us in the place that we're at, not in the place of perfection or a place of, of having it all together, but that you actually know us intimately. You know what's good for us, but you know what's bad for us. You know our stubbornness and you know our excitement for things. Thank you so much that you want to work with us and not against us. But Lord, in this space, we surrender and say that there's things that we pay lip service to, that we know is your heart. There's things that we say we're passionate about and yet we don't actually follow through like you've called us to. Jesus, we just thank you so much for your cro- the cross and the forgiveness and the restoration that you bring into this place of disobedience. But Lord, we don't want to be people that linger there. Holy Spirit, we just pray you would restore those passions, restore that perseverance, restore that stamina, Restore that zeal for your heart, for your vision, for your agenda, whether or not we see the outcome.